The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Important, so important. All right, enough, enough of that. Here we go. Uh, verse 13. And they sent uh, to Jesus uh, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach uh, the way of God. It is, lawful to pay ta- is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought one. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died and left no offspring, and the third likewise And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. When they rise, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, you know, it is for this, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the power, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. For as, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And now may we uh, be sanctified by your truth, O Lord, for your word is truth. Uh, When my boys were young, I took them on a hike to the top of Stone Mountain. We were in Georgia for family vacation. It was a much hotter day like today, you know. It's just like, you feel like you're walking, but you're swimming through water, you know. It's a really hot day. And uh, the first part of the hike uh, up Stone Mountain is, is flat and it's pretty uninteresting, and um, they were young. They didn't really understand that if you persevere through the you know, like boring stuff, when you get to the top, the, the view is spectacular. Uh, the sermon this morning is sort of like that. <laughs> so you're going to have to kind of walk with me through some things that uh, it may seem, at least for some, a bit uninteresting, although I promise you they should, it shouldn't be. But I pray and I I hope I can keep this promise when we get to the top, the view will be uh, spectacular. In The Tempest, Shakespeare wrote, misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. 
In recent years, that phrase uh, has been reworded to politics makes strange bedfellows. The literal meaning of the quote is that people with nothing in common may come together solely on the basis of a shared political interest. Now, as a child growing up in Chicago in the 1960s, I was taught this principle. I I, I didn't even realize I was being, being taught it. The divisions in the city uh, were many and could be bridged if a common enemy uh, could be found. For as Shakespeare pointed out, misery had a way of bringing enemies together. And for uh, the many long-suffering fans of the Chicago Bears, uh, that misery is still today called the Green Bay Packers. So... uh, I was taught that, you know, that people could get together on a Sunday. It may not be in church, but it could be in, in, in like a common hatred of that terrible little uh, sausage town in northern Wisconsin. Well, what is true about politics and sports is also true about religion. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand that within the religion of Judaism, there were groups that sharply disagreed with each other, but at the same time, viewed Jesus as a source of common misery. As a source of common misery. The Pharisees were the conservative, God-fearing group that controlled much of Jewish life. The Herodians uh, were a smaller sect of political concerns. And uh, by their very name, you might have guessed that they had something to do with the family of the Herods, who were kings at that time in Israel, kings who were actually puppets of Rome. The Sadducees that we met uh, were more of an elitist, aristocratic group. Um, they were liberal in their theology, and, um, but, but they were well-financed, and they didn't mind you know, showing it off. And... Um, Then, of course, as we saw last week, you had the scribes and you had the elders and you had the chief priests and all of these people, all of them, who on any other day would have been opposed to each other, found a common denominator of hatred, and that is Jesus Christ. And so um, they did uh, make strange bedfellows indeed. And we need to remember that when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, he does so with a bounty on his head. You know, this thing that the Pharisees and Herodians say like, oh, hey, listen, we know that you're a great teacher and you don't care and uh, you only teach what is lawful, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it, you know, it goes against the very reality that they had already put a bounty out on his head to have him killed. You know, if you don't know a lot about Jesus uh, and you want to understand more about Jesus, You really need to focus on what's happening in passages like this, although it seems to be a little, you know, a little abstract, although that was back then. No, it actually is for today. We need to look at Jesus in these passages through what uh, the church has taught about what is called the threefold ministry of Christ. That Jesus Christ is prophet and priest and king. And, and, and as Mark um, teaches us about that, we can think back into the Old Testament and we can find some signposts in the Old Testament that show us that and kind of lead to it. But it really comes alive in the Gospels and then in the remainder 
of the New Testament. And, and for our purposes in Mark, uh, if you were to take chapters uh, 11 through 16, they could very easily be divided as chapters 11 through 13 is the work of Jesus as God's prophet. He is announcing judgment on the religious leaders. He is announcing judgment on the systems of Israel. And ultimately, he is announcing judgment on the temple, the very place where Israel was gathering for worship. And this prophetic work of Jesus in these chapters is important to pay much attention to. But when you get to chapters 14 and 15, Jesus begins to lean into his priestly work. He receives the anointing for his burial by, by uh, Mary Magdalene in the house of Simon the leper. And after that anointing, you might be familiar with that scene when he takes his disciples to that upper room and there he explains to them how his body and how his blood serve as the new Passover sacrifice. And then that sacrifice is made the, next, the very next day when Jesus is driven outside of the city of Jerusalem and he dies the most horrible death imaginable. His death by crucifixion is understood to be a priestly work, right? As he atones for the sins of his people, he atones for the sins of the world, including your sins and my sins. The once for all sacrifice, this priestly work of Jesus has meaning for us today. And then when you get to chapter number 16, what does he present? He's presented as God's eternal king when Mark tells the thrilling story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The stone is rolled away. Jesus has walked forward. He is alive. He is risen. And because he is risen, we too have been raised up in Christ because of what he has accomplished for his people. All of this is happening from chapter 11 to chapter 16 in what is the most important week in all of human history. There is no other week in all of human history more important than this week. And these chapters tell us about all that Jesus was accomplishing. Now, as I said, hey, don't blank out on me. I know this is a little like theological lessons, and you're like, oh, Pastor Ken's been reading again. Oh, no, we gotta, gotta go through this stuff. Like, hey, I read all the time. I just don't, you know, always tell you about it. Um, but, but the reason it, it, it's important for today is because who are we talking about? We're talking about the living Lord Jesus Christ who, by the way, is still carrying out this threefold ministry. He is still the prophet, he is still God's priest, he is still God's king, but he is doing his work through the church. He is doing that through us, his people, who then are his voice, speaking the prophetic word, presenting our lives as a living sacrifice in light of his great sacrifice telling people that their sins can be forgiven through faith in his shed blood, and we bow under his kingly rule as he rules over all of the earth, right, through the church. We are the manifold wisdom of God, Paul tells us, for the world in which we live. To, to understand Jesus in these terms is to understand our work. What is the church to be about? You see, not only does the uh, world misunderstand what goes on in a place like this week after week, 
but very often the church misunderstands what it is to be doing week after week. These two confrontations uh, here in Mark chapter number 12 are examples then of how the world misunderstands and we misunderstand. You know, I said in a sermon a few weeks ago that, that people, uh, especially, you know, related in the church, tend to drift off to the edges of life and they want to talk about all kinds of things out here on the edges because they don't want to actually grapple with the main thing. And this, this whole line of questioning, going back to chapter number 11, moving forward into chapter number 12, is a perfect example of this. This whole line of questioning by the religious leaders is nothing but a diversion. It's a tactic that they are using because they do not want to deal with the things that Jesus is saying. Mark tells us these men came to try to trick Jesus into something, that, you know, to say something that he couldn't defend. You know, it, it, listen, it's always easier to talk about taxes. We all hate taxes. That's easy. You know, it's always easier to sit around and pontificate about theological abstractions. You know what the real hard thing in the life of the church is to get people to the center where Jesus is and to deal with the reality of Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king. Say, well, what, is, what, are, what are they trying to avoid? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 24, he says to the Sadducees, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, he says that to them specifically here in this place. He has said that to the other groups as well, recorded in other parts of the Gospels. This is quite an indictment. This is quite an indictment, especially in light of the fact that the very people he is talking to from their birth knew the Scriptures. These men went to school for the Scriptures. They had spent much time teaching the Scriptures, and yet Jesus says to them, you don't know the Scriptures nor do you know the power that is in the scriptures. That's quite an indictment. You might ask, well, how is it possible that Jesus, who appears to be nothing more, right, than an untrained rabbi from a small backwater town in Nazareth, how could he put his prophetic finger on the pulse of the actual problem that is right in front of him? And there is, of course, only one way. He's more than just a prophet of Israel he is God's prophet he is God in the flesh he is the fullness of deity and bodily form he is the one the book of Hebrews was talking about when it said you know it knows all things it pierces to the very depths of our hearts you know if the religious leaders had actually known the scriptures they wouldn't have come to Jesus with the intent of trying to trick him I mean, if you really say that you know your Bible and you're being changed by your Bible, why would you go to somebody and try to trick them, try to put them in a bad light? And, and, and you say, well, you know what? Why did they do that? And, and how does Jesus respond to this? Well, what does he tell them to do? He says, well, well bring me a coin. Bring me, bring me a coin. And they bring him a coin. And whose image is on the coin? It's the image of Caesar. The image of Caesar. And then, and then what, is, 
What does Jesus say? He says, well, render the Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But render to God the things that belong to God. And do you see what Jesus did there? He took the example of an image and he showed them how little they knew about the power of the scriptures. And he said, well, how does he do that? Here's, here's how, because from the very beginning of the Bible that they would have read, right, from the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Old Testament, the books they would have known and read, from the very beginning of Genesis, what are we told? We are told that God has made man in his image. In his image. And so they're there. They're standing there holding the coin. Caesar's image is on it. And Jesus says, well, listen, if you want to live that way, if you want to pledge your allegiance to the image of an earthly ruler, then render to him what is his. Go ahead, bully people. Go ahead. In the very house of God, go ahead. Try to trick them. Try to get them to say something that, that they might regret. Anybody have that happen to them in church? It's okay to say, yeah, maybe, no, whatever. Talking to you, yeah, right? Have we ever had that happen, right? Jesus is saying, listen, you're holding the image of the thing that you're actually pledging your allegiance to because of the way that you are acting. You are acting out the image of the one that you seem to belong to. Go ahead, abuse your fellow neighbor, trick people, try to put them off their game, bully them, try to take advantage of them. That's what the image of Caesar is all about. That's what this world is all about. But if you're going to come in here, he says, you know, and claim that you have allegiance to God, then you better not come into the temple with a sinister intent to try to trick a fellow bearer of God's image. And I think therein lies this lesson for the church today. Whose image are you carrying around? Whose image are you most likely bearing today? But of course, it, isn't, it, it doesn't stop there because the Sadducees come to them, come to Jesus, and, and, and Jesus makes clear to them that they also haven't been transformed by the scriptures because they lack an understanding of the life to come. Now, in the church, you always have a lot of Pharisees. But you know, in the church, you also have some Sadducees. You have people who really don't believe that there is a day of judgment coming. And the way we know they don't believe it is by the way that they're conducting their life. Oh, they may say, yeah, I know, I know that judgment is coming, but they really don't believe judgment is coming because of the way they conduct their lives. One of the odyssey, uh, oddities of, of being a Sadducee is, is that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so Jesus confronts this, them about this. They say, well, you know, you're wrong about your position because God is the God of the living. And, and then, of course, you know, how do we know that? Well, because in the second book that they would have read, the book of Exodus, you have God in the burning bush and he meets uh, Moses. And what does he say to Moses? He says, uh, he says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus tells them this. And, and so Jesus says, and listen, you're, you're wrong. You're, you're, you're quite wrong about your, your position. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of the scriptures. And all of this 
is part of the larger theme of these chapters because as Jesus announces judgment on the temple, a question we have to ask, and it's an incredibly relevant question for us as well, are the leaders of Israel beyond repentance at this point? Have they gone so far from God that judgment is going to fall? Have they, maybe in the words of Jesus, committed the unpardonable sin? Have their hearts become so deceived that they are beyond hope? And, and for the answer is, for some of these, is yes. Some of these religious leaders have gone so far, there is no turning them back. But I want to remind you that in the book of Acts, you know what? Many of the Pharisees, many of the religious leaders did respond to the call of the apostles and the preaching of the apostles, and they began to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Some were unrecoverable, others were recovered because they listened to the scriptures and they began to know the power of the scriptures. And for the church, what we have to understand is that just as Jesus got in trouble with the power brokers of his day because of his prophetic ministry, it is exactly that kind of ministry that the church needs to undertake. We once again need to be a church in the community that has a strong prophetic ministry preaching about who God is in Christ, preaching salvation in Jesus, preaching coming judgment in Jesus, but more than saying it, we have to actually believe it and be changed by it. And that, I think, is a gap that is very often missing in the church. Do you think we might have the same problem as the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees? Do you think that we might have the problem that we know the scriptures, but we don't actually know the scriptures because we don't know the power of God? Do you think that's possible in a church like ours? Do you think that's possible of your pastor on some days? Could it be true of you? Could it be true of us? So, well, what if it is? What, what are we going to do? What if it is? What are we going to do about it? Well, you know, in this text, Jesus gives no remedy. He is simply announcing judgment that is falling. But there is a remedy presented in the whole of the scripture. And I, begin, I believe that correction begins right here in this place each day, each Sunday when the church gathers, when the church gathers on the Lord's Day. When we come into this room and we hear the word of God, when we fellowship around the things of God, when we, when we gather with other bearers of God's image who are being transformed by the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ, because Jesus, seated on his throne, is the perfect image bearer of God. And we, being brought into his fellowship when we gather Sunday after Sunday, then share in his likeness. This is what we read from Nicaea Creed earlier. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, 
the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through Him all things were made. If it is not the job of the church to bring people into the presence of God through public worship so that they might encounter the living God in a transformative way through His Word, then what are we doing here? Why else would we be here? If it's not then, to present, thus saith the Lord. And to give people an opportunity to hear what God has done for them in Jesus. I mean, if we're here to talk about taxes, that's easy. Everybody hates taxes. Nobody likes those things, right? I mean, are we here to discuss abstract theological issues? Sit around a table and pontificate about things we think we know about? Or is our gathering to be something much more? You see, the first confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders is not about taxes. That's not what it's about. It is about the question, whose image are you bearing? Are you acting like Caesar? The guy whose coin you're holding? Or are you actually being transformed, acting like God? The second issue isn't about marriage and about the kingdom to come. It is about the authority of Jesus over all human relationships in the coming kingdom. Have you bowed the knee to the authority of Christ? Are you living under his authority truly as a Christian? This is how these passages are to be taught and applied within the church. You know what? If we're not rightly bearing God's image... When we walk into this building, then we are going to miss out on meeting with him when we do gather in public worship. We'll be out on the edges somewhere. Well, what about this? What about that? What about over here? What about over there? What about these people? What about that? Instead of gathered around the enthroned Christ who through his church is still carrying out his work as prophet, as priest, and his king. But you know, it is not enough to bring correction to the church because we are given the authority to be the voice of Jesus outside the church. He is the God of the living. And what Jesus is directing the Sadducees to, I think, uh, you know, in, a, in a deeper way, is that death is not final, but life is. Have you considered that lately? Death is not final. Life is. You, you know what a meme is, right? You see that M-E-M-E? It's not meme Not like your grandmother. It's meme. You know what a meme is? You get one of those things. You go, oh, that's, that's interesting or whatever. I, I was sent one this past week, and it said, just when I am on the verge of growing cynical about our society... I see an old woman smile and give up her seat for a pregnant man. That's good satire. That's good satire because it makes you think. It makes you think. But what should we conclude from it? 
You see, when Jesus is confronted with these supposedly hard questions, what does he do? He takes them back to the beginning of what God said. And we are always confronted with these questions now. What about this? What about that? What about them? What about people over there? Are we equipped? Are we ready to take people back to what does God's word say about these things? He takes them to Genesis. He reminds them that people are made in the image of God. And because God is the God of the living, those image bearers will experience a final judgment to come. And then the question becomes, on which side of the equation are you? Are you bearing the image of God now fully in Jesus Christ, transformed by his life? Or are you simply created in the image of God, but never being transformed? You will spend a life in eternity, away from God, in the depths and darkness of a place so terrible, so horrible, called hell. Where are you? Where are you? This is a foundational truth that the church must not, hesitate, not be hesitant to talk about. But when we talk about it, we must have the impact and the power of the Scriptures through the Holy Spirit that is changing us so that it might change those who hear. If our lack of power is because we are comfortable sleeping with the strange bedfellows around us, then let us repent. Let us repent. If we think our common enemy who makes us miserable is taxation or the liberal elitists who are soft on crime, then we miss the larger issue. The enemy is the power of darkness. The enemy is the spiritual force of wickedness that is destroying lives, destroying cultures, destroying societies. The enemy is Satan who uses those dark powers and malignant forces to his advantage. This is the enemy that Jesus faced. This is the enemy that Jesus defeated. And as we carry out his threefold ministry, we do so in his victory as we proclaim his glorious name. For there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So let me end. Where we began. Baptism. Because in baptism we see the fullness of God's salvation. Have you been buried with Christ in the likeness of his death? Have you been raised in the likeness of his resurrection? So that you might be ready then to say to the church community, I am a follower of Jesus. And now I want to say that in my water baptism. But you know, I'm also so very thankful that we've been able to feast on God's word together. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and now we come to this blessed table. And at this table, we remember that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body, it is for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, it is for the forgiveness of sins. And it is in these repetitive acts of the church that we are invited in to join him in his work. 
the one who is still our prophet, the one who is still our priest, the one who is still our king, and will be even unto and after the great day when we are raised up and eternity breaks forth and we are transformed to the time when we fully bear the image of our God and our King. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and the fullness, the blessing that has come to us in Christ in this service. And now, O God, as we prepare ourselves for your table, may we be ready, I pray, as image bearers who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ to fellowship one with another at this blessed table. May we each do due diligence to examine our hearts that we might be ready to eat the bread and drink of the cup. We'll spend just a few moments preparing our hearts further before we come together at the table. Let's be quiet before the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.